Uh, welcome. I'm so glad you're joining us this morning, uh, whether you're online or here in person. We're glad you're here. Uh, and happy Mother's Day uh, to all you moms, uh, whether you're a biological mom or you just have been helping people grow over the course of uh, their life. We are so thankful for you. I've been, I was thinking about that this morning. Uh, all, of my, all of my moms, uh, Veronica is out of town this, this uh, weekend, and my mom lives in another state, and my mother-in-law in another state. So uh, I didn't have anybody necessarily right next to me this morning to, to wake up and celebrate them. Uh, but I was thinking about all the moms that have influenced me, and, and uh, some of you are in the room today just because of the way that you love and serve and give and, and show kindness and encouragement and support. Uh, we just we thank you for that. Uh, and it got me thinking this morning about things that moms say, right? And, and you, you grew up, uh, there was probably some things that your mom said. Uh, there were some things that my mom said. And I, and I wondered growing up if they like gave a book uh, to moms and dads, right, of things that you're supposed to say to your kids. In fact, uh, this is true story. My mom, when I would say, you know, like, you're being so mean or, you know, why do you always do this to me, whatever it is, she say, sometimes, son, I lay in bed at night and I just think about ways to torture you. That's what happens. Um, true. She really did say that. I don't think that's true that she did it, but I do. She did definitely say that. I think, uh, I don't know how many of you, how many of you, your parents said at one point in time, or now you have said uh, the phrase like, uh, because I said so. Right, so that's a uh, pretty standard phrase for moms. Or I've told you a thousand times, right? Which I actually think is true. Now that I'm a parent, I'm pretty sure that that statement is is true. Uh, I remember hearing the one when I was growing up: "Money doesn't grow on trees." Yeah, your mom told you that as well, right? And it's important for us to remember. Or maybe you've heard: "When you're a parent, then you'll understand." Right, and then you became a parent. You're like, oh, now I get it, and now I do get it. Uh, one that always perplexed me as a kid. Uh, one that my mom said often uh, was that I needed to finish uh, whatever meal she had planned because there were starving children in Africa. And I remember one time I was about ten years old, so I didn't. I, I knew enough to speak back, but not enough to to be smart about it, right? And I said, "Well, let's ship it off to them, right? Because this is horrible, right?" And um, uh, yeah, that did not go over well. But there are also mom rules. You probably grew up with mom rules like, you know, don't eat with your elbows on the table, things like that. Moms always try to help us, nurture us, teach us good manners, or wash your hands before dinner. We tell our kids that all the time. It's dinner time. Wash your hands. And that's, that's good for us to remember. What I came to think about this week was that uh, mom rules fall into kind of two categories, two categories. The first category uh, is rules that you graduate out of. You don't always have them, but for a season of your life, you'll have certain rules that apply to you. So for instance, uh, one of the rules growing up might be when you're young, don't touch the stove, 
right? Don't touch the stove, just leave it alone. But eventually, and this has happened for most of the kids in our home, now it's we want you to touch the stove in order to make something, you know, some kind of dinner for everybody else. That would be helpful. Go ahead and touch the stove. We graduated out of the rule of not touching the stove to actually using the stove. Uh, that's a rule. Or for some of you, you know, you when you were little, it was bedtime is at eight o'clock, and then you graduated out of that rule, and it became later and later on. So there are rules that you graduate out of, and then there are rules. This is the second category. There are rules that supersede other rules. Now this is important because. This is going to help us segue into what we're talking about today, but I think it's important for us to understand the concept. So, for instance, growing up, one of the rules I bet in your household was don't talk to strangers and don't take candy from strangers, right? Those are good rules to have, except for on Halloween. Then you take candy from strangers and you talk to them, right? That's just, that rule supersedes all the other rules, right? Uh, another rule in your house, it's a rule in our house, and probably you had it too, is don't yell and scream and run through the house uh, because that will, that's just chaotic and then crazy and those kinds of things. You get too many people doing that, it's just, it, it, as a parent, it just drives you out of your mind. Unless there's a fire or there's an emergency, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, of course, yell, scream, run. We want you to alert everybody uh, because there's an emergency and we need to know. So that rule supersedes the first rule. Uh, Maybe if uh, another rule might be something like, you know, don't, don't hit or punch or kick somebody else, right? Unless... They're harming you or abducting you or they're harming somebody else, in which case it's okay to do because there are two categories of rules, right? The first one you graduate out from, and the second one is that there's understanding that there's some rules that supersede other rules. Over the last couple of weeks together, over the last, I think, five weeks together, we've been talking about this uh, series on deconstruction and how deconstruction is a normal process of, of our human tendency, our human faith. And so there's no reason for that to really cause us alarm, uh, although sometimes we haven't been very good talking about that. It's important to do and it's important to walk through, but it needs a healthy approach right? Uh, Again, we go back to our our Jenga game, and the goal of Jenga is not necessarily just to wipe all of the blocks clean. The point of the Jenga game is to find the loose bricks. See, I built it higher this week. I learned. Uh, And then figure out which ones are weak, which ones don't fit, and then continue building on the structure that's firm. That's a healthy part of deconstruction. It's not wiping the slate clean because then you're spiritually homeless. It's figuring out what fits and what doesn't. And that's important. And so we've looked at that and we've wrestled through things uh, that oftentimes cause us to deconstruct our faith. So the second weekend, we talked about uh, suffering and injustice and our view on that. And uh, the week following that, we talked about uh, Christian leaders and, and what happens when we put our faith and trust in them and then they turn out to disappoint us over time. We talked through that. And last week, we talked about uh, the Bible as not being 
the foundation of our Christian faith. And sometimes when we get a brick out of whack, it causes the whole thing to shift and crumble. And so it's important to go back through in a healthy way and reconstruct some things that just don't fit well. And today we're going to be talking about the distinction between background, secondary, and primary beliefs. Background, secondary, and primary beliefs. Now, this morning, uh, if you were here when, when the girls, by the way, girls, thank you so much for reading the scripture today. Uh, read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And as he writes to them, one of the things that he says is, of first importance, meaning above everything else, that Jesus came that he lived, that he died, that he resurrected, that he came back to life, and that he presented himself before a group of people. And for Paul, he presents it in a way that he says, this is paramount. This is primary. This is of, in Paul's words, of first importance above everything else. And this is important because sometimes uh, in, in our theological ramblings, we try to make all of Paul's points count the same. Everything that he says seemingly adds the same weight. But Paul himself, as he writes, says, no, no, no. If, if you're going to get anything of importance, then I need you to know what's first importance. And first importance is Jesus. And here's the problem when we construct our faith when you don't distinguish between a primary and a secondary belief, you will likely pick the, and follow the one that comes easiest and the one that's most comfortable to you. We've done this in our faith. You've, you've seen this in various churches. You've wondered why some people seem to kind of hang on to certain pieces of the Bible or the biblical text and really begin to push that home while ignoring other pieces of it. In fact, you may have grown up in a system or grown up in a church or grown up in a theological construct where you didn't even know that there were some parts of the Bible until you got older and read it on your own and you're like, well, where has that been the whole time? Now that's because there are, there are parts of our faith that as, we, as we're learning, some people have grabbed a hold of a part of the faith and said, this is paramount, this is primary, and everything else is off. Or, uh, even worse, that everything becomes a primary source. And when that happens, we fight about everything. And you've been there before. That everything becomes an issue. That anybody who might believe separately or differently or perceives something uh, not as important as you, that becomes an issue to you. And when that happens, it begins to shake your faith. And so it's important for us to understand when it comes to the, the biblical text, there are primary, secondary, and background beliefs. Now, here's what I want to tell you today. It's okay to have those beliefs. 
But I would caution you like Paul to say, what are the primary beliefs or the primary structure of my faith? And we're going to get to the end today and kind of settle how do we get there. But before we do that, I want to read a section of scripture with you today. It's found in Mark chapter 2. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark chapter 2. And... We're going to read a a certain section of Scripture here. We're going to start in verse 23 of Mark chapter 2. This is what it says. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples were walking along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, I want us to stop here for just a moment. There's a whole lot in just two short sentences that we need to look at. The first one is the law of the Sabbath. Now, the law of of the Sabbath is important for us uh, to understand because this is a law that God gives to his people, and he lets them know that no ordinary work should be done on the Sabbath. The reason being is that, that God wants for his children to rest in him. That's what, he, that's what he wants. He understands, this is, this is amazing, that God understands that you and I need rest. And that sometimes we get so busy, so caught up in life. Have you been here before? That you get so caught up and so busy and so consumed in life that you forget about him. You been there before? I for sure have. And so God says, no, 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 I don't want that for you. In fact, I'm going to separate out a special day for you that you don't do ordinary work, but that you understand that you can find everything you need in me. Now, that's beautiful. But here's what happened. There was a difference between God's law and the oral law. The oral law was added on to God's law as a way of helping uh, maybe understand a little bit better in their terms what God was implying because clearly God can't uh, get his words out straight. So we have to help him sometimes, right? And this was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was added to, it was, it was an, uh, added to the oral law, and it was a teaching. And in the Mishnah, there are about 39 different distinctions on the Sabbath of what's permissible and what's not permissible. So in there, uh, as, as uh, they're talking about the Sabbath, the Pharisees notice that Jesus and his disciples are breaking, thing, uh, breaking rules of the Sabbath. Not God's law, their law. Now I want to stop for a minute because I think even the thought of them being there strikes me as funny. Uh, it doesn't strike me as funny that Jesus and his disciples were there because we know that they were not necessarily the wealthiest of all people. And, and we understand through God's law that God created something that people could glean from the field. So if you had a field and you had crops, uh, you couldn't take a sickle out and then gather everything you needed. But if you were walking through, you could pick heads of grain and you could eat that. That was there for the poor. But what's interesting is the Pharisees are there as well. And I don't know what's going on. I don't know if they're like tucked behind some tall, uh, you know, grains or what, what's happening. But all of a sudden they kind of poke their heads out from nowhere 
Why are they following Jesus and his disciples around? I don't know. Sometimes I think it's because when we're concentrated on one section and we see it as primary, we'll make other people a point. And that's dangerous. But they question them. And they say, why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? So for them, there are about four, four rules that they've broken for the Sabbath. And this is important. There are four. The first one is reaping. They are reaping by grabbing the grain and plucking it. That's reaping. The second one is threshing. Because in order to eat that, what you have to do is hold it in your hand and rub it together. You're separating out those pieces of grain. That's threshing for them. The next is your winnowing. Uh, the winnowing was, was trying to decide between the wheat and the shaft. Remember that? Remember as Jesus talked about that? Well, the best way to do that if you're going to pick a head of grain and rub it between your hands is that you would blow. And you would blow out the shaft and the rest would be grain. So they're, they're reaping, they're threshing, they're winnowing, and they've broken one last rule and that is you're preparing food. See, you've gone through the process here of picking and, and threshing and winnowing, and therefore you're preparing food, so you've broken four of our laws of the Sabbath. What are you doing? This is important for us to understand that they are applying their rules and their interpretation to what God has given, which God already said, listen, don't do ordinary work on the Sabbath, but put me first. They felt the need to supersede that, to act in place of God. And here's the thing with this. If you feel like God needs your help in making his commands clear for everyone else, then it's probably a secondary belief. In fact, I might say that it's a background belief. All, and when I was growing up in church, I remember hearing arguments about various things, and I don't even get into all those things. But I remember hearing people say, well, to clarify, this is what God means. And I would think to myself, I don't think God needs you as a spokesperson for him. I think God's pretty clear about the things that are primary to him. Now listen, those other things, they're not unimportant. They're just not the primary thing. And when we get that out of whack, man, our whole foundation will begin to crumble. Let's keep reading on here in, in Mark. Verse 25, Jesus, he answers. Have you not read, stop for a minute right there. <laughs> Remember who Jesus is talking to? He's the Pharisees. Do you know what it takes to be a Pharisee? See, Pharisees had to study the law till they memorized it. They were people who knew the Torah frontwards and backwards. They, they were people who could quote Scripture over and over and over again. And Jesus says, in almost a backhanded way, have you not read? Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? 
In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated, uh, consecrated bread, the show bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And then he gave some to his companions. A little context of the story there. David was actually already anointed as king, though he had not actually replaced Saul yet. And he was doing the work of God even though he had not actually been uh, announced as king. Now, if you go back and read the story, and this is what I find interesting about the Bible, is that sometimes you read uh, these, these characters that we often inflate in storybook, uh, flannel book stories, uh, that sometimes they have uh, a roundabout way of getting there. And in this story, David kind of tells some lies to get to the consecrated bread so that his people can eat. But nevertheless, they eat this bread. And in fact, we read that it's special bread, right? It's made only for the priests, so it's made on the Sabbath. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way that they make it that they actually sift it about 11 different times, and it's good through the Sabbath, and then only the priests can eat the leftovers. But here in this story, we read that David and his companions, or David and his motley crew of army people, wound up eating the bread. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Have you not, do you not remember the story when David eats what's sacred and he shouldn't have? Why do you think that is? And then Jesus is going to clarify. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. You see, Jesus isn't dismissing the Sabbath. He's not saying, all right, it's over. It's not important. We're getting rid of it completely. He's saying, you've made it in a place of primary. But there's a rule Remember what we talked about with mom's rules. That supersedes other rules. And that's humanity. In Matthew's version of this story, Jesus turns to them and he says, suppose one of you have a sheep and it gets stuck. Well, what do you do? Well, the Pharisees knew exactly what they were going to do. In fact, they had written it out in their law book. Right? That if it was something pertaining to the, to the wealth or to the humanity of that person, then they could go ahead and do that thing. Oddly enough, however, if somebody's life were in line, they could intercede with that. But if somebody was harmed in any way, if somebody was struggling in any way, you couldn't help them. So if they were sliced open, well, we'll take care of it tomorrow. But if, if you're going to bleed to death, then we might help you now. And what Jesus is saying is, don't let, don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes. That God cares about his creation. That humanity is important to him. See, it's not about dismissing the commands of God, but rather what lens of priority you view them through. For the Pharisees that day, everything was viewed through the lens of the Sabbath. 
and for Jesus, his lens was through the view, uh, view of God's love for humanity. And this is huge. This is a game changer. He says, listen, you're thinking that God established this law of the Sabbath and then said, all right, people, now you have to follow this. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. See, the Sabbath was made for you because God loves you. Because he wants rest for you. And you're trying to make this about us following the law when God really ultimately cares about you. A couple of verses later in Mark chapter 12, we read this same thought. Mark chapter 12 verse 28, again Jesus is talking to and and having uh, issues with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees again. And in this particular uh, section of Scripture, Mark 12, verse 28, says this, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Jesus is always debating with the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commands, which is the most important? Or in other words, of all the commands, which is primary what's the lens through which we should see everything else the most important one aka the one you shouldn't forget aka the thing you should see everything else through aka the one that's worth putting your foundation on and making everything else secondary or a back burner issue is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What if truly that's primary? What if Paul was right? A risen Jesus who, in John 3.16, came because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And God is paramount. And he's holy. And he's good. And he's Lord. And he calls us to love one another. And what if we were to read every other command of Scripture through what is primary first? See, there are times where primary supersedes everything else we know. This happens over and over and over again in the Bible. I'm, I'm actually surprised by how often we miss this. I'll only list a couple for you, but I want you to go back on your own this week and reread. And again, it's not to dismiss those as unimportant. It's just important for us to understand that everything is through that lens, that there is a primary thing that supersedes everything else we do. You remember the story of the Hebrew midwives. You remember this story? Happens early on in the Old Testament. 
right? There's a command by Pharaoh to kill all the Hebrew boys. But there's a group of midwives who don't follow the law. And they don't follow the law because they're just lawbreakers because it seems obtrusive to them. They follow the law because they know they serve a God who values humanity. And so they save them. You remember the story of Rahab? I love the way that, he, that Hebrew, the Hebrew writer, you remember this? That, that she is a hero of faith. Try teaching that to the middle, middle school kids, right? <laughs> Do you know that every time Rahab is mentioned, it's Rahab the prostitute? And yet she's a hero of faith. See, isn't it good to be morally good? Right? Would we not all agree that that's important? Uh-oh, we're way off base here. <laughs> Would we not agree with that? Is that? Okay, good, all right. I'm starting to get nervous there for a minute. Y'all like, we don't care, whatever. Um, <laughs> yikes, okay. Um, however, Rahab, though, though entrenched in some things, recognizes that God is primary She's going to listen to him first and love these spies and save their life. And through that, and that alone, because the rest of her story is pretty horatious, right? It's, it's terrible. It's awful. She's recognized as a hero of faith. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Jesus tells this story about this guy who's walking alongside and vandals come, they nearly beat him to death and they rob him. And then there are people who are too pious to help. And the reason why they cannot help is because it would break what in their, in their viewpoint, the way they see things, it would, it, would, it, would, it would break what they believe. They would be unclean. They would be late to their duties. And so they can't help. But the Good Samaritan, though beliefs are off other places, recognizes that God values humanity. And so he helps. Have you ever noticed how many times as Jesus is touching people who are unclean to heal them when he doesn't have to? Ever thought about that? He could have healed anybody he wanted to without even ever touching them, but he does. And therefore, in Jewish culture, makes himself unclean because he values humanity the way that God values humanity. Remember in Acts, as the church is wrestling through, what should we do with these Gentile believers? They don't, they don't follow Scripture. They don't follow authority like us. They don't have the primary things of faith that we do. What should we do with them? Should we kick them out? We can't call them Christians. Certainly, they're not faithful. You remember what they settled on? We're not going to make a stumbling block of secondary and background beliefs become a hindrance to their faith. And so we're going to cast those aside, not that they don't matter to us, but they are not primary for us. 
us. See, there's a big distinction. And it's hard for our minds to wrap around if we didn't grow up in the framework that helps us understand that the scripture is full of primary, secondary, and background beliefs. And sometimes there's a need for the primary belief to supersede everything else. Nothing is more paramount in this than the story of Samson. How many of you have ever taught uh, little kids class before? You ever been there? Yeah, you've had the battlegrounds that, you know, this battle scars to show it, right? I remember teaching a group of kids this story before, and before I taught it, uh, I thought I would familiarize myself uh, with, with Samson's story because I only remembered what I was taught. So I went back through and I reread it, and I thought, this guy, he's no good. <laughs> like, how'd this guy get in the Bible? Really, honestly, read his story. It's It's crazy. How he was ever a prophet or even somebody that we would say, there's a guy you want to, you know, take after. And the only thing I can think of is this. When God views us, he recognizes that we're broken and sinful. And we're not going to get it right. What he wants to know is what's primary in our life. And I think the story of Samson, though crazy as it is, shows at the end of his life, he wanted to honor God. He viewed God as most important. And that's the action that he took. See, church, we will not always agree on secondary issues. You found that to be true. You've probably met somebody who said they were a Christian, but believed a creation timeline way different than yours. And you thought, well, how could you be, how could you be a Christian if you believe that? You've met a Christian who believed a different practice of baptism than you believed. And you thought, well, how could they, how could they possibly be a Christian like that? You've met somebody who thought of end times differently than you, and you thought, well, how can they be a Christian like that? You've met people who have worship practices different than you, and you may have thought, how could they be a Christian like that? And here's what I want to tell you. Those are secondary issues to the primary importance of loving God with all we have. And loving others in the same way. See, our goal should be to hold with a tight fist that we are to love God and love others with all we are and all we have and everything else receives grace upon grace. I love that terminology. It's found in John chapter 1 verse 16 as John's letting us know that the goal of the word, the word becomes flesh and makes its dwelling among us that we may know the one and only God. And, and then John, as he begins to write, talks about how Jesus is continually making his way through humanity to redeem and restore humanity. And as he does so, he, he, he gives this phrase, I'll paraphrase it here, and he says, he gives us grace upon grace. Have you ever wondered to yourself, man, I'm at the end of my rope with this person. See, I believe there was a time where God was at the, uh, at the end of 
his rope with us. And instead of cutting it, he decided that he was going to give grace upon grace to you and I. And maybe we model that. And I know what you're thinking, all right, so what do we do? How do we help people correct these improper things? Well, maybe that's not your goal. Maybe your goal is to show them how much you love what's primary to Scripture and let Jesus work out the rest. He doesn't need you to clarify it for them. He can do a really good job of that on his own. What he needs you to do is make what's primary, primary. And he'll cover everything else. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and give you peace. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with tremendous joy. May you be swept away in God's love for you and then transformed through the Holy Spirit's power within you. Thanks be to our only God, our Savior, who's unparalleled and unchanging, who is matchless so merciful, who's supreme and sufficient, who's before all things, through all things, in all things, both now and forever. Would you stand with us as we worship today?